Welcome to the Celebration Podcast. This podcast is dedicated to meaningfully transforming your thinking through exploration, knowledge, creativity and connection. In each episode, our invited guests will share their authentic experiences and established expertise to inspire you to take positive action. The theme for this episode is Fearless Stories, in partnership with the Institute of Human Development and the Be Fearless Movement. The Fearless Stories format is where our guests share an incredible story of triumph over adversity or challenging circumstances. I have a fantastic guest today who is Sue Liebird, MBE. Sue is an award-winning business leader, human capital innovation consultant and chair of senior executive forums with an impressive track record of working internationally for some of the world's most leading corporations. She has helped board-level decision makers to successfully shift their thinking and new solutions to challenging business issues. Uh, Sue, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. To start with, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm in the uh, enviable position of having a portfolio career now. And uh, what that means is I have a series of non-exec directorships. I'm a non-exec director um, within the uh, NHS at a national level and a regional level. Um, I also sit on the board for a number of commercial organisations. So um, one of those is a training company that specialises in diversity and inclusion, particularly with a bias towards supporting um, middle tier career managers. Um, Another organisation does international internships. Um, I'm also active in the um, higher education space with regards to the universities and, for example, the University of Lincoln. I live up in Lincolnshire. I sit on the board of the student union, but I'm also a consulting partner for the uh, International Business School. And I also get an opportunity to curate uh, TEDx events with regards to women and I sit on another a range of advisory boards so I've got a, this lovely portfolio I also uh, am an independent consultant within my own right as I have my own business called Sage Blue. How many people are you Sue? Uh, sounds, <laughs> sounds like too many identities for one person to have but that's incredible that's such an um, amazing portfolio that you've got there. What was the kind of challenge or problem that you wanted to solve moving into the work that you've been doing? Um, One of the things um, for me is overcoming what's called imposter syndrome. As you've said, you know, I'm highly, you know, award winning. I get to work across sectors at some of the most senior uh, levels in organisations. And everybody assumes that all of the time I'm absolutely 100% confident and I'm accomplished and I'm, uh, you know, achieving But ever so often, I, like a lot of people, and particularly women, find that my imposter syndrome emerges. And if you're, you know, if your listeners aren't um, 100% sure what imposter syndrome is, it's a a psychological condition whereby we experience self-doubt with regards to our abilities and our accomplishments. So despite all of the factual evidence, despite what anybody else says externally, there's a bit of us says you know, I think I might be a bit of a fraud. Why am I here? And there are actually, believe it or not, there are two types of um, (laughs) imposter syndrome. There's the individual who what you call downplays their abilities because they want to be seen positively. So it's the, oh, I'm not very good at this. 
but then they do something and they shine and they get all of the praise. So that's one type. I'm not talking about that type of imposter syndrome. What I'm talking about is the other type whereby regardless, as I say, of factual evidence to the contrary, you feel as though your success isn't your own. It's due to some external factors. And ever so often that pops up for me. That's really interesting, particularly, as you said, with working at such a high level with amazing organizations and, and leaders who almost look to you for their confidence a lot of the time to be able to say, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> you must know what's going on. Can you kind of give us a little bit of an example of how that's manifested itself in the past for you? Well, um, I had an ambition to become a member of a scrutiny committee. The scrutiny committees are really important in large organisations, particularly where we have statutory funding and where funds have to be really accounted for, particularly in terms of the public um, purse. So I um, felt that in terms of my portfolio of experience that I hadn't directly had that experience myself. So I wanted to uh, become a member of a, a scrutiny committee and, you know, hold a system to account. What we do is you're investigating if there's potentially any um, fraudulent activity or any decisions that have led to misspending. I love challenging decision making. Um, so it's called assurance. What we've got to do is slightly stress test some of the decisions. So one of the challenges about scrutiny committees, they're often populated with auditors and lawyers and business analysts and chief financial officers. So there's a lot of jargon and there's a lot of familiarity that sits in those committees. Um, and I'm an outsider to that environment. So therefore, you know, a little bit of my imposter syndrome uh, emerged when I finally got to sit on my first scrutiny committee. When you're looking at those people in the room, they are uh, a lot of different thinking preferences there. There's a lot of different styles, a lot of different ways of looking at a challenge. And I think a lot of the time, particularly going into anything where there's scrutiny involved, with people looking through lots of lens, I can see why imposter syndrome would definitely be one of the things that would be in the front of a lot of people's minds in those situations. So what did you want to achieve and why did achieving it matter to you? Well, I wanted to be able to add some real value. One of the things that you get in when you get lots of like-minded people together is groupthink. And so what I wanted to do was be the person in that community, so sitting in that committee, that could just disrupt or interrupt the groupthink. So therefore, to make sure that the scrutiny committee was actually doing what it was set up and tasked to do and doing that effectively, and to make sure that the needs of all of the beneficiaries down the line, you know, the service users or the, you know, the customers, people right at the end of the line were getting good value for their money. So what were you worried or anxious might happen? Well, number one was that I, I, I wouldn't have a voice in that space, that um, I was there to make up the numbers so the optics were okay. It's, you know, it's good to have Sue along, um, given my portfolio, given my credibility, my brand, if you like. I was worried that I wouldn't be able to understand if it is if they talk at such a level 
of technical expertise that I don't have, that I wouldn't be able to contribute meaningfully. So therefore, I would be, you know, treated, well, less favorably than everybody else. So I wouldn't really have a say. I was there to my fear and anxiety was that I'm there just to make up the numbers. I've got through all of the hoops, the recruitment. I'm now onto this scrutiny committee, but that really nobody wanted to listen to anything that I had to say or that I couldn't find anything meaningful to say. There's a lot of competing emotions that are going on in those kind of situations. And I think we can all empathise with the times where we've sat in a room and been like, I have no idea what's going on here. What on earth are they talking about? What is this jargon? What are these acronyms all about? Uh, uh, For me, I can remember when um, going on to actually a political conference and sitting, I was there along as a guest and sitting in an audience and thinking like, I have no idea what they're talking about. I had to have the person Mm. who was sitting next to me was fortunately a, a head of public affairs and she was literally translating the jargon for me as I was sitting there. But I'm sure other people can feel that on their first day of work when they go into that first meeting and they start to hear that high level technical talk and like, oh my God, what job have I got myself into? What do they think that mm. I know? Or what do they think that I don't know? It's definitely a challenge that I think lots of people face. What was stopping you from getting what you wanted out of those kind of, out of being on that scrutiny committee? Well, in the, the first instance, I think what was stopping me was, believe it or not, just the internal narrative that I was having in my head. There was nothing really stopping me. The scrutiny committee, when I first joined it, was being chaired well. There was a balance. There was um, there was a gender balance in, in there. So women were able to speak up clearly. So it wasn't as though there was any of those dynamics, the, you know, the diversity and inclusion uh, dynamics that we, we often find um, occurs in some senior uh, meetings. So we didn't, we weren't having that challenge. So, so the only thing I could really get clear in my own mind when I sat there is, and I was just looking at the dynamic and I was listening to my internal critic, my internal chatter that was going on, was that I found myself going, well, I don't know what to say or should I come in here Mm. or should I raise my hand or oh no will I be seen as being you know stupid or that's too naive a question so I just had what was stopping me was my internal chatter and my perception I think about how one's supposed to be in these particular forums and I think there's a lot of uh, people who who do sit in a room and they do feel, oh my God, this question is going to be too naive for the people to listen to. What, I'm going to look silly, I'm going to look like an idiot because I've asked the question, I need to to be able to understand what's going on. And actually there's probably 50% of that room thinking exactly the same thing going, you know what, Mm. I just wish somebody would ask that question because I haven't got the confidence to do it. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's interesting when you're talking about um, these, the kind of perception that you have going into these meetings where you've already kind of created an environment in your head where there's all these different barriers that are here that are already stopping you before you even sat down on that at, at that table. I just kind of want to build on that a little bit more, which is, is there any negative stories from your past experiences that might have been playing around in your mind um, that had potentially having an impact on you not getting what you wanted? Um, when I look back over the, um, the years, you know, right back to, you know, so 
childhood, teenage years, my 20s, my 30s, my 40s, I'm now in my 50s. When I look back at all of those years, um, and particularly some of those earlier years, there have been um, occasions whereby I've been on a team or I've been on a committee or I've been on a board. And I've really felt as though I've had nothing meaningful to contribute. I'm there but it's the, well, my skills, knowledge and expertise isn't of relevance. And in the past, um, one of the things I've always made sure is that if I don't feel I've got anything to contribute or I don't think I've got any value to add, then I don't stay because that's one of my core values. I show up in places where change is going to take place or people need some fresh perspective. They need some new ideas, some new thinking. So it's all about adding value. And if I can't add value, then I leave. I'm used to being an outsider. I grew up in the military. So we'd move around every three or four years. We'd have a, uh, have a posting and we'd go somewhere else. So you'd arrive at a new school, not knowing anybody. Um, so very quickly being able to build some relationships. So I'm used to being an outsider. I'm used to being new. I'm used to not being the same as everybody else. But always in that first phase of arriving somewhere new. So you leave what you know, you leave the familiar, you're leave the systems the processes the relationships that are very comfortable moving to somewhere new there's always that small period of doubt anxiety whereby it's like okay got to gird your loins and go right here we go again it's a bit like being on a, a roller coaster here we go again you know you've got to kind of gird your loins and off we're gonna go some of those past experiences because they're quite primal get triggered or got triggered when I was uh, joining this particular scrutiny committee can you give us a really concrete example of um, a situation that you'd faced where those experiences of those negative stories that were really prominent? So we've kind of done a bit of a high level overview. But I really want to just think about a specific example. Yeah, um, I remember when I was I'm, I'm a former member of the armed forces. I'm a former uh, army officer and uh, I had a, a posting into a unit and I was then invited to um, sit on a, a committee and it was all very very senior military officers there were colonels and brigadiers and major generals and uh, so I was a, a captain at the time and I was sat there around the table and they were all men and I was the only woman and like I say I was a junior officer to them and I had nothing, absolutely nothing meaningful to say at all. I just did the, why on earth am I here? I didn't have any of their past references. So there'd be sharing stories, you know, socially, anecdotally, as well as around the agenda. I didn't have that shared experience at all. Um, equally, because they were so very senior. Now, don't get me wrong, obviously, as a, as a captain, you're quite senior in the military. But when you're sitting up with, you know, generals and brigadiers, it is the, I've got nothing to say. And I just sat there in a whole meeting from start to finish with nothing to say, nothing I could contribute at all. What an environment to be in, particularly as a black woman in the military in, what are we talking, 20 years ago? Yes, 20, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Twenty years ago, that must have it must have an impact on your perception of going into those meetings and plenty of experience, lived experiences, because it's a regimented environment as well. So trying to express 
potentially your ideas had to has to take on a completely different lens because you've got a form of hierarchy that's very explicit uh, yeah. and very controlled. You can definitely see how that could tie into your experiences, even though it was 20 years ago of going onto a scrutiny t- committee in the, the here and now. We don't forget those things. We don't we, we learn with they, they're embedded into us. They are. They sit with us right there in our DNA. They're like um, little little scars that ever so often we have these new experiences um, and we get drawn right back to that previous little scar that, you know, we pick at a little bit, really. Yes. Um, And why do you think that is? Why do you think it has such a prominent place in our heads? Um, I think it's it's the human condition. We are, you know, in psychology terms, we are always referencing our past experience. Our past experience is there as obviously as as a memory, but as a as a resource for our, our current day resilience. So we find ourselves in a situation if we've got stresses or we've got challenges or we've got a difficulty. The default is to go all right, how do I deal with that? Well, let me reference that back. Where in my past experience have I had that something like that before? And then what did I do in that situation? But also what happens is it's not only what did I do in that situation, what gets triggered psychologically is how did I feel in that situation? So we have thought and we have feeling, and then that becomes a trigger in in the the present time in current time to how we're going to deal with the situation that we're dealing with right here right now and do you think that there's an impact of those two factors correlating basically between your imposter syndrome and these past negative experiences yes those um with absolutely without a doubt so if I use the example where I'm sitting back in the military with all of the senior officers, I, I felt like an imposter. I didn't have um, a, a frame of reference at that particular point. Did I go on and do other things with uh, senior officers? Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I sit now, for example, on um, a council whereby it is full of retired major generals, lords, baronesses, so very, very senior, influential people. I don't have any imposter syndrome because I'm very clear about who I am, what my contribution is. I hold them to account. I challenge. I've got far more experience than I did when I was back um, as a captain in the army. Which ties on nicely to my next question, which was there positive stories from your past successes that you were drawing on in order to drive forward and to overcome that imposter syndrome? Mm, absolutely. Um, so I, I've alluded to a couple is that certainly because I grew up in the, the military. So uh, my father was in the RAF. So as um, so as he his career had him move, then we obviously as a family moved. So I got used to every three or four years having the move. So I'm used to being, you know, moving from familiar to being unfamiliar. You know, I'm used to being an outsider. So being a minority that spends a lot of time being around white majority, I get used to being an outsider. Also, I am a disruptor. I can just disrupt by just showing up to be totally honest in some situations <laughs> either sometimes intentionally sometimes unintentionally yeah. you know it depends what's going on absolutely um, can give, give it give us a bit of an idea about what you mean when you say being a disruptor yes so I will um by showing up or some of the questions that I ask um what I do is I 
interrupt familiar patterns of thinking. I interrupt people's comfort zones. Um, to give you a really left of field practical example, um, I was, this is going back quite a few years now, I was staying with a friend up in the northeast of England and uh, we decided we we're going to go out for a drink to, you know, the local pub. And uh, the local pub, there was a, a meeting of um, the British National Party uh, taking place in the pub. So anyway, in we walked. And there was it was uh, one of those moments, a tumbleweed moment where there's absolute silence as I, this black person, had walked into a British National Party meeting. And um, so the friend who I was with, he said, well, Sue, maybe we shouldn't really stay. And I said, oh, no, don't be silly. Of course we have to. So come on, let's get a drink. And uh, so we got a drink and I went over to the meeting and sat down to to join the party members and I said well look here's your opportunity to um have the you know lived experience ask questions of me as a, as a you know as a black person what it's like to be you know black British and e equally can I ask you questions as to why you want to be a member of the British National Party and why you want to have you know all foreigners leave the UK why you um think that you know, the colour of my skin means therefore I'm a foreigner and that I don't have a right to be here, you know. Um, so we ended up having really great debate discussion and a few of the individuals sat round the table that evening did the thank you for coming. I hadn't seen it like that. I didn't realise. I just thought that, you know, quite frankly, you know, all black people were foreigners. I mean, that would have taken a hell of a lot of drinks. <laughs> <laughs> That that was my main thing. I think this this pub uh, made a lot of money that night. But it sounded like a very interesting experience and what an enlightening one. Because a lot of the time we just don't have exposure to. Well, sometimes people don't have exposure to um, an audience that they actually really need to hear from. And it sounds like that was one of the things that is why you wanted to be on the scrutiny committee in the first place was to be that audience, to be yes. that point of contact to for people to be able to see a different kind of perspective. And it's great when you've got economists and, and lawyers and all of the people who are experts in their field in the, in the room, but that doesn't mean they're an expert at everything. Absolutely, absolutely. Hi, I'm Jamie from Cerebration. Our social enterprise supports organisations and business leaders who want to unleash the full potential of their employees, but are facing some challenges. Typically, these are things like they struggle to retain high-performing individuals and maintain proficient teams. They are frustrated that they can't leverage the individual attributes and talent in their organisation. They are unsure how to utilise the authentic lived experiences of their diverse workforce to gain a competitive advantage. I don't suppose any of these sound familiar. If they do, or your organisation is facing other challenges, it would be great to learn how our enterprise can support an organisation like yours. To discuss your organisation's learning and training requirements, you can book a no-obligation discovery meeting at www.cerebration.space forward slash meeting. So, were there any um, resources such as like friends, colleagues, money or time that you had that you utilised to be able to help you achieve what you wanted? What did you draw upon? Well, to be honest, I really 
drew upon my past experience. I am by nature a thinker, I'm by nature a reflector. So whenever I have a moment of doubt or anxiety or concern, um, that's a red flag. I'm, um, I'm trained and schooled in a range of disciplines um, and being fearless is one of those disciplines. So when I find myself in those moments of self-doubt, I go, oh, I need to find, carve out a little bit of space and time and just give some thought to that. So I, the resource for me was past experience and some of the, the disciplines that I have absolutely learned in the past. Another resource was the um, go back to my core value. And a core value is um, arriving to any meeting fully prepared. What I made sure that I did was I got a profile on absolutely everybody around that table, understood them. I um, wanted to make sure that I knew you know, what were their particular interests professionally. I'm not talking about them being my best friend or anything. Um <laughs> So, you know, what they're coming from, what's their disciplines, how long they've worked in a particular area. So because it may, you know, I found myself going, well, maybe I just need to do a bit more research here. Also, one of the key things is to make sure, um, and I say this to anybody that's sitting on any boards or any committees, is make sure you read your board papers. <laughs> I would allocate, um, make sure I allocated more time to preparation for the committee meetings than I would do for some other meetings. So I had all my questions ready. So I really, really prepared. And one of my role models is Christine Lagarde, former French Treasury Minister, um, then was the uh, head of the International Monetary Fund. Um, and one of the things um, she always said is the importance of preparation. So how did she tackle some of her imposter syndrome was to make sure she was fully prepared in every situation. And so I just thought, well, how would Christine tackle this? Well, she would do X, Y and Z. And I just modelled that. So therefore, you know, if there was something I really didn't understand, I'd make sure I would do my homework before I got into the room. Interesting. What would Christine do? Christine? Well, <laughs> what would she do? A, prepare. Two, <laughs> she'd ask really challenging questions. <laughs> <laughs> I can see why you would like this person. See, I, I can see why this person resonates with you. Absolutely. <laughs> so... What was the uh, who was the kind of person that you needed to be in order to take uh, action and to get what you wanted? Well, the really interesting thing with that question is I needed to be myself. What had flagged up? It's not that that wasn't genuine. You know, my doubt, my anxiety, that that bit of imposter syndrome. That is me. I, I recognize that. That's me in a completely new situation that's unfamiliar for a short period of time. But I needed to remember who I was. One of the things to my core is if there is any inequality or if there is any injustice, I cannot walk past it. I cannot. Mm. I, I am compelled to do something, say something, take some action, hold somebody to account, challenge them. And so what I did was make sure that I found when I was going into scrutiny committee meetings that there was a, a an, an end user, there was a customer, there was a client, you know, there was a beneficiary whose needs I was championing. And I 
had to remember that because that's who I am. I'm a champion for the underdog, really. So I had to remember that. And so therefore, the moment I think, hang on a minute, this decision may have a negative impact on a group of people. It's a no brainer. I am 100% confident there is no imposter syndrome. There is I will be like a terrier in terms of interrogating people and their thinking and their ideas. I will not let something go. So you can hear the passion in me. Mm. It is the and I've been on the receiving end of the interrogation as well, and it, and it's and it's a very useful interrogation, but definitely not always a comfortable one. <laughs> it's actually nice being this way around and me being able to ask the questions. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so, so who do I need to be yeah. in those moments? Yeah. I just need to be myself. Remember who I am and show up as myself. What was the outcome of being yourself at these kind of meetings? What did that bring to the scrutiny committee and ultimately benefiting everyone who was there? I would say it was on a a couple of levels. So first of all, for myself, I got respect because what I said is I was very clear to everybody. I said, listen, I am not you. I can't be you. I have no intention of being you. I am who I am. So my job here is to ask the questions that sometimes are noddy questions, um, the simple questions to remind you who the beneficiaries are, who the end users are. Um, wherever I think there is groupthink, I'm just going to raise my hand and say, you all sound as though you're saying the same thing. And if there is a um, area where I am genuinely ignorant and I don't know, then I will ask the questions so and I got respect for that um and again then what started to happen was people then would refer to me they go Sue have I got this right or I'm thinking about x y and z end user or particular service do you think through your lens that something that I have been that I have missed so I started to change the perspective of the scrutiny committee members So they started rather than to talk just in a place of technical expertise. It was what I'd call applied technical expertise. They remembered that the decisions we were making were being applied to a service or ultimately a human being at the end of the day. I felt as though I managed to change some perspectives, really contribute, add some value Um, And what was also fabulous for me as an outcome was I learned new things. So now I sit on an audit and risk committee, for example, within the NHS, and um, I sit there not as an imposter. I sit there comfortably able to understand and to ask pertinent questions when I feel the need arises. Just want to kind of go back to a point that you said there about learning new things. Can you give us just a few tips and pointers that you picked up from this whole experience i'm a big fan of continuous learning uh the world is moving and shifting at such a pace and i'm I'm paraphrasing but i think it was muhammad ali that said you know if you're the same person at the age of you know 30 as you were when you were 10 
forgive me, Muhammad Ali, mm-hmm. I think I've just ruined your, your quote. Um, but, you know, there's, there's a problem with that. You shouldn't be the same person age 30 as you were when you were younger. You shouldn't be the same person um, at age 40 or age 50 as you were at age 30 because the world's changed and we're evolving and we're growing. So continuous learning, I think, is really, really important. And learning from our past experiences, um, mining them, harvesting the gold and the nuggets. Um, and that just builds our resilience. Um, right now, we've got people going through a really tough time. You know, we're in 2020, it's Corona time. And people's resilience is being really, really tested right now. And the more experience we have to draw on, the more learning we have to, to draw on, the more resilient we will be. And it will just stand us in good stead. It's really interesting what you said and of your paraphrase, uh, Muhammad Ali quote. I'm, I'm sure you won't mind. Um, the, it, we, I was literally having a conversation just before this podcast about with a friend of mine who, who I live with. Uh, who knew me seven years ago and he was telling uh, a director who was my director at the time and is now his director in a completely new organization who is completely baffled that we live together um and he's like jamie you mean jamie from where the organization that we were at uh, and i said look i just want to give context to 23 year old jamie he just moved to London. He'd used up all his savings to get there. He was on a year contract and he was making 15 grand a year. <laughs> that is very different than 23-year-old Jamie compared to 30-year-old Jamie has a very different life experience and a very different set of circumstances yes. um, that all tie in. And I think sometimes we uh, get a fixed idea of a person in, a, their, in our mind uh, forgetting that there is always that continuous learning, that is, there is always that continuous development. And we have to grow and learn with those mm, people. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what advice would you give to other people who are facing similar circumstances to the imposter syndrome that you've sometimes felt? Um, first of all, is recognize it when it arises. Normalize it. It's it's a friend. It's not an enemy. It's a friend. Um, don't allow it to stop you from doing things. It's just uh, treat it as a pause to reflect and to do some planning or do some strategizing. I would also say, ask your questions. There's no such thing as a stupid question. There really isn't. If you don't know something, and it's a point you made reference to, if you don't know something, if you're in a, in, in a group, it may well be that other people don't know either. Your inner voice is, you know, shouting something at you. Don't ignore it. It's either trying to protect you or it's trying to encourage you to take some action. So I just think it's about um, what I call feel the fear and do it anyway, in the words of um, Susan Jeffers. So why is it important that other people take action when they do feel it? I think it's important because um, we are, the nature of being humans, we're, we're, we're adaptive, we are evolving. And if we don't take action, what happens is, we send a signal externally, first of all, that we accept the norm. Even if we don't, we've given a signal that we accept it. So it, it's, it's consent by silence, really. So if we don't agree with something, I think it's incumbent on, a, on us to find a way to say that. And I'm not saying shouting and banging tables, but it's just, this is not opinion I hold, or this is not, I can't agree with this, or 
actually, I think we do need to debate or discuss this a little bit more because I don't think we've heard all of the opinions. So I think it's important that we do that. If we don't, what happens is we walk away from a situation and it still sits with us. It still churns. So we then can't put it down. People then, you know, find that, you know, a week later they're still talking about it or they're still thinking about it. And and that's a distraction and that's wasted energy and that's not good use of our amazing brains that we have. Um, so I think it's incumbent on us to take action because it doesn't really do us any favours not to. When people, uh, when people take action and they recognise that they've been able to do that because of feeling these fears, what is the reward for them as an individual? How does it feel to them? Um, and have you shared this experience with other people who've said, you know what, this is what this provides me? Well, I've got a big smile on my face. I don't know if it's translating, um, you know, um, down the microphone, but I'm a big fan of celebrations. I think we should celebrate success. I think we should celebrate achievements. And um, if we've overcome a challenge, we've overcome an adversity, I think it's really important that we honour that. Um, so one of the things, for example, I love in professional sport is that, you know, at the end, people do a, you know, a victory lap. They will, you know, you'll see Usain Bolt do his, you know, his flash. You'll see Mo Farah do the Mobot, you know. So I think we all should have these little, uh, little actions to support our, our, our achievements, no matter how small. And uh, I've got a victory dance. I have to say, I do. <laughs> I do. I mean, now all I want to do is see the victory dance. It's a real shame that we're over a podcast because I, I feel that this is now something that would enhance my life greatly. <laughs> so every little celebration should be acknowledged, should be you know, celebrated in some way. Need to acknowledge it. We do. Thank you so much, Sue. That was really interesting and enlightening. And I think will be really beneficial to a lot of people who face an everyday challenge, which is imposter syndrome. It doesn't matter whether you're going into your first job and it's your first meeting or you're an established director at the top of your game. It can hit anyone at any point. And it's nice to know that there's the tools and resources out there to be able to find ways to make it useful and as you said make it into a friend and not an enemy so just before we leave where can people find out more about you and what you do and get in contact if it's applicable so please find me on linkedin um sue liebird or you can follow me on twitter at i sue liebird there's another sue liebird out there it's hard to believe i know but uh, (laughs) i sue liebird so at i sue liebird and um, I also have my own personal website, which is suelibird.com, if you want to get hold of me. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time, Sue. Jamie, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to Celebration with Jamie Brett. If you like our show and want to hear more, check out our podcast channel at anchor.fm forward slash celebration. If you are interested in the work Celebration does, visit our website at cerebration.space and please leave us a review on wherever you get your podcasts from.